welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, New Living Translation For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 11 through 14, New Living Translation. So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your Heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and He will give you everything you need. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, New Living Translation. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to another Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time poet. Today on Anchored by Truth, as we approach Thanksgiving and Christmas, we're going to begin a new series where we focus on the central figure of the entire Bible, Jesus. That seems appropriate as we come to this time of year when we celebrate the Lord's birth, doesn't it, R.D.? Well, Christmas is certainly a time of the year when people begin to more naturally think about Jesus, and that's a great thing. One of the reasons they do that, of course, is that reminders of Christmas and of Jesus start to pop up more and more around us every day. We see posters in stores, and we see displays on street corners, and of course displays on individual people's houses that show us and remind us that Jesus is, as they say, the reason for the season. But I think it's important for especially Christians to remember at this time of the year that it's not just important for us to focus on Jesus during the Christmas and holiday season, but it's also important for us to focus on Jesus every day of the year. For Christians, Jesus should be the focus of our daily lives. And actually, each and every day throughout our lives, we should go on our own quest to get to know God a little bit better every day that God grants us, because each day is an opportunity to know Him better. I agree with that. So today, we're going to start listening to a new Crystal Sea story. This time, it's one of our rhymed pieces that you originally wrote as a sort of Christmas epic poem. You said you wrote it originally because you wanted to give it as a gift to some co-workers. Yes, I did. That's the reason that I wrote it. Years ago, when I worked in one of those big state agency buildings that are so common around here, 
I wanted to give some Christmas presents to some of my coworkers, but given my position in the agency at the time and a lot of my coworkers' positions, that was going to be pretty tricky. So I decided that the one present that I could give them that wouldn't cost anybody anything was a little entertainment. So I wrote this Christmas poem basically to entertain some of my coworkers. And I found out afterwards that a lot of my coworkers liked it so well that they actually took it home and used it with some of their own families as part of their Christmas celebration that year. And I was inspired when I wrote this particular Christmas poem to do it based on two things. First of all, I wanted to do it the way the old-timey pieces had been done in rhymed verse. But the second was, I wanted to do it in such a way that people would be interested as we went through the several parts to come to the next part, kind of the way that they did the old movie serials when I was a kid, when you'd go to the theater on Saturday and before the main feature, you would see some short clip that would always leave the hero or the heroine in some dire condition, so you just had to come back next week to see what happened. So this is a Christmas story in six parts, and at the end of each part, you are left wondering what would happen next. All right then, let's see how this story begins. Here's Crystal C's Christmas epic poem, The Golden Tree, Kamari's Quest, Part 1. Once upon a time, in the land of infinite snows, The land of the midnight sun, the season was just beginning. High spirits were starting to run. Goodwill drew each to his neighbor, the air filled with Christmas cheer. As the bears began to celebrate the most special time of year. Starlight gleamed and twinkled through air both brisk and bright and snow like satin shimmered, veiled in tiny jeweled lights. Happiness, wonder, and peace had captured and enraptured the town, and the bears joyously reveled as love unrestrained did abound. But low out of the east crept a nasty and ghastly gloom that for the bears could temper would swiftly and surely spell doom. As the bears hurried and scurried to their homes for evening repose, they knew not of impending horror that the dark had yet to disclose. Very nearly had the town laid aside its hustle and bustle for a time to rest its holiday thoughts in sleep and dream sublime. Mothers were nestling their children under quilts in deep peaceful sleep. And still no bear had an inkling of the danger that upon them did creep. Only one small bear was still out and she was nearing her door and still no alarm had sounded to disturb any slumbering snore. This last little bear was coming from the heart of the tiny town square where she had just finished tending their treasure so glorious and rare. A secret both wondrous and magic, most dear and precious you see, 
The source of the bear's good fortunes was the golden eucalyptus tree. A tree known mostly in fable with powers beyond compare. Vital to the bear's well-being and known in all halls round there. This stout and hardy tree had sustained the very first bears who had left their homes down under to search for the great northern lair of the immortal white koala who was revered strong and wise, creator of all the bears and the earth and sea and skies. Those bold and earnest pilgrims who settled this wonderland had hoped to find the truth and so had left their clan. They braved the raging oceans and eluded hostile lands. They crossed the great frost deserts and conquered high mountain bands. Though they were ever true to the vision that led them there, they never found the throne of the white koala bear and in truth were about to perish, for they would not surrender their cause. When near a great mountain's peak, one final time they paused. I really like some of the lines from that part. Starlight gleamed and twinkled through air both brisk and bright, and snow like satin shimmered, veiled in tiny jeweled lights. Not only are the lines lyrical, but they also evoke such clear imagery. I can imagine kids sitting around with their mom and dad. Or grandmother and grandfather. Or grandparents. Listening to this recording with them. Just like families used to sit around and listen to someone read The Night Before Christmas. Of course, that's one of the reasons we wanted to put this poem out there. To give families an entertaining story that would allow parents to discuss their faith with their kids. Exactly. There are so many questionable choices these days that are advertised as being family-friendly, but in reality they are unfortunately based on a secularist view of the world. A lot of these family-friendly stories that are produced by the secular media, frankly, either derive little of their content from faith, or if they do derive any from faith, it's so generalized and watered down that it really doesn't translate well for what Christians want to impart to their kids. We wanted to produce a story that was fictional but distinctly Christian so that it would be suitable for fireside listening, especially in Christian homes. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy the story or the music or the rhyme, but we wanted to make sure that at least Christian families had one authentic choice for their Christmas entertainment that was going to allow parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever it might be, even just friends, to be able to have a straightforward discussion with the kids about the content of their faith that is reflected in the story. Well, there are a total of six parts to the Golden Tree Kamari's Quest, right? So for the next five weeks, we'll be letting the story unfold as we continue to unpack insights into how the Bible is such an integral part of being able to frame a coherent worldview. I mean, the two fundamental attributes that you believe would have to characterize any book that would constitute a genuine, special revelation of God are that the revelation would have to be consistent with the created order 
as it is observable by creatures within it, essentially us. Right. As hard as it is, or as exciting as it is to comprehend, empirical observations combined with applied logic tell us that the visible universe does not, and indeed cannot, provide an explanation for its own existence. Christianity is a supernatural religion, but in a very real, but maybe ironic kind of way, the universe also gives evidence that there must be something outside of the universe to enable us to logically and coherently account for the existence of the universe. And we discussed all of this a few episodes back. The universe, as grand and as vast as it is, displays all the fingerprints of not itself being eternal. That means it had a beginning in space and time. Also, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, tells us that the universe will someday have an ending. Well, anything that has a limited lifespan, no matter how long some people might conceive that lifespan to be, anything that has a limited lifespan cannot be self-existent. Yet only a self-existent being or entity can account for its own existence or the existence of anything else. Now, some philosophers describe the distinction between these two things as being the distinction between a necessary being and a contingent being. And so the universe itself cannot, does not, provide an adequate explanation for its own existence. So we have to look outside the universe for something else, something supernatural, if you will, to account for the universe's existence. And since the universe is not eternal... It looks very much like it is contingent on something or someone outside itself to account for its existence, a necessary being upon which it is dependent. And we call that necessary being God. So just like the little bear in our story, when we see starlight twinkling on a blanket of snow, we can see that that starlight and the snow, and especially our ability to see and understand, points to the need for a creator. And so that little bear's ancestors had left their home down under in the hopes of finding the lair and throne of their creator, who they thought of as the great white bear. Yes. I think the symbolism for the story is pretty plain, but I would like to point out one thing that I think is very important for people to note. And that's one of the things that I do want to spend a little time on today. The bears who set out on the quest to find the great white bear would never have started the quest if they weren't convinced that the great white bear existed. And you see, that points to one of the problems that we see reflected so clearly in today's very relativistic culture. Too many, far, far, far too many people today, sometimes both inside the church but particularly out, they're defeated in their own quests before they even begin because they have been misled to believe that there is no creator that there is no explanation for everything that they see around them. No great white bear, if you will. And as a result of that, they see the world as being fundamentally either chaotic at best or outright meaningless at worst. And of course, that kind of a starting point is not going to help people pursue a quest for meaning in their own lives. I think you need to expand on that thought a bit. You're saying that God isn't just a logical necessity to explain the existence of a contingent universe, but that an awareness of God is an essential component of us being able to comprehend our place in the universe. Well, to quote what I say in some of the life lessons with a laugh, exactamundo. <laughs> so you're quoting yourself. 
Sounds like something only a writer would do. Again, I say, exactamundo. Anyway, as the great theologian R.C. Sproul used to say, ideas have consequences. So the idea that the universe was framed by an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and holy God carried with it the inextricable notion that the universe had been created intentionally and for a purpose. And as such, the universe would display design and order. And the intelligent creatures within that universe, us, could perceive that design and order. And that very concept formed the foundation for what we think of as science today. And that's why many of the founders of modern science, like Sir Isaac Newton and Louis Pasteur, were strong Christians. They were convinced that there was design, order, and logic in the universe because the universe had been made by a being that was supremely purposeful and logical. As such, they were encouraged to go and discover that order and use the results of it to improve the lives of people around them. Or, said a little differently, they were encouraged to go on their own quests to discover more about the creation and thereby appreciate even more the Creator. So yes, all that made perfect sense. If the universe had been created by a God of order, logic, and purpose, then the creation would be comprehensible. Those early giants of science took very seriously the biblical statement that man had been made in the image of God. So they felt sure that God would bless their efforts at applying themselves to understand what he had created. But one of the tragic effects of the success of their work and the truly amazing results they achieved is that over time, and now we're talking about centuries, not even decades, over time, the work of science has become divorced from the original source of the inspiration for that science. Scientists, not all, but quite a few, have become convinced that it is possible to understand the creation while ignoring the Creator. Or, said slightly differently, they sought the blessing without regard to the blesser. So one of the points you're making is that somewhere along the journey for discovery, the quest, a lot of people forgot why the journey was begun in the first place, and that is reflected in our society and culture today. Yes, and Christmas, of course, is a great example of that same phenomenon happening in our calendar and in our celebration of the common understanding that was once the foundation of our communities. Communities are built around not just people, but ideas and cultures and common values. Well, when you try to divorce the values and the culture from the origination of those values and culture, obviously, confusion is going to result. The word Christmas obviously derives from the words Christ and Mast. When one of the big reasons that gift exchanges became associated with the celebration of Christmas was in commemoration of the great gift that God had given the world in the birth of Jesus. Well, of course, the whole reason that God gave us the gift of Jesus to begin with was because after the fall in the Garden of Eden, God had begun His great plan of redemption. So, in a very real way, the history of all mankind gives evidence of God's unfolding plan in exactly the way that God intended. Now, it will give evidence in different ways. Sometimes it will give evidence by the direct testimony of the people, of us, to the existence of God and to His goodness and to the gift that He gave us. 
But even when people try to deny that God exists, they're still giving evidence of his existence because who would work to deny something that doesn't exist in the first place? You don't hear people running around today trying to deny vehemently the existence of witches. Why? Because there's no common understanding or belief that they exist, at least in the way that we used to think of them at one time. But people will run around trying vehemently to deny the existence of God because every person has been built with an intuitive awareness of God. And so in order to get around that, people will sometimes have to work very hard in order to convince themselves that he doesn't exist. And you believe that even some of the more tragic things we see around us provides evidence of the existence of God and the truth of Scripture? Yes. C.S. Lewis once noted that one of the things that convinced him to become a Christian was that he couldn't get over the idea that some things were right and some things were wrong. But then he realized that for that idea to make sense, that there is a difference between right and wrong, that he had to have an explanation for where that idea came from. Why did he think that there was a real distinction between right and wrong? Well, of course, the only logical conclusion you could come to, and that C.S. Lewis did come to, was that some things were right and some things were wrong because there was a being, a God somewhere, who had established the whole moral and ethical framework to begin with. And that's just as true today as it was when C.S. Lewis originally struggled with it. That's a pretty remarkable idea when you think about it. The very notion that we have ethical sensibilities to begin with is dependent on there being a real difference between right and wrong. And it's not just a matter of personal convenience like preferring squash to broccoli. When people begin to assert that something is wrong, they don't just mean that they find it inconvenient. They mean that there is a determinable ethical distinction that compels, or should compel, our behavior. And we all know that. Anyone who doesn't know that there is a difference between right and wrong, we would describe as a sociopath. And we would have good reason for doing so. Now in saying this, in saying that there's a real difference between right and wrong, that's a common awareness among mankind, we're not saying that there is universal agreement on the precise details of what's right or wrong. Different societies at different times have arrived at varying conclusions about the specifics. But there's never been a society in human history that did not make some kind of a distinction, regardless of what they did with the specifics. In some cultures, the distinctions about what's right or wrong might have been ones that we would consider trivial, like acceptable dress for men and women. But in other societies, those kinds of differences might have been more profound or serious, like what is the appropriate relationship between a government and its people, or whether private ownership of property is permitted or prohibited. The rules have varied, but in every culture, tribe, and nation, there have been rules of some sort. And pretty much all people everywhere know that they have, at one point or another, violated those rules, written or unwritten, government or culture, religious or secular. We have an inherent awareness that as moral and ethical agents, we have certain obligations that we are subject to. So we see that not only is there a physical order to the physical universe, there is also an ethical order that applies to us as people. But without there being a God, a holy and purposeful God, we would have no reasonable explanation for the existence either of the obligation or the sense that we need to be accountable. And that same sense that tells us that we are subject to the obligation tells us that we have all fallen short. Right. We all know that we're not perfect. 
But to know that we're not perfect means that we know that somewhere out there, somewhere, there is a standard against which that determination can meaningfully be made. And that's why Jesus had to come. And that's why the Christian claim that Jesus was perfect, was sinless, is so essential. Again, to refer to R.C. Sproul, R.C. used to say that if he was in a discussion with someone who refused, just absolutely refused to acknowledge the existence of God, one of the final questions that he would ask such a person is what they did with their guilt. And we all have guilt, and some of us feel it far more keenly than others. If we don't have Jesus, if we don't know Jesus, then we're the only ones who can shoulder that guilt. But the moment we understand that the perfect man, Jesus, has willingly taken our guilt onto his own shoulders, we can start to become free of that guilt. And that's one of the keys to beginning and completing our own quests through life. Sounds like a great time to have a prayer. Since we're approaching Thanksgiving, how about if today we listen to a prayer for the special day when we turn our attention to the goodness that God has shown to us? A prayer celebrating Thanksgiving. Blessed and wonderful Father, you are the one true God, the Lord and Master of all. We praise and glorify your name, for you are mighty in deed and in name. You are the foundation of our faith, our sure hope, and the source of all our blessings. Lord, we want to thank you for those blessings, so many of which are manifest on this day. History tells us that our forefathers established Thanksgiving as a way to acknowledge your provision in their lives. We want to continue in their footsteps to acknowledge that all good gifts come only from you and that we are completely dependent upon you for all our needs. We pray that you will be merciful to us in the future, even as you have been in the past. We praise you that you have continually provided for us, even in those times when we were hard-pressed and struggling. We are amazed and blessed by your generosity and kindness. Father, among our greatest blessings are those of family and friends. Help us always to cherish them and to not take them for granted. We know that there are many this day who are without their families and far away from their friends. We pray that you would be a powerful and immediate presence to them. We pray that you would be the great comforter to them, closer than a brother and more real than the air they breathe. Bring to our minds any who have need of the comfort that we can provide. Inspire us to reach out to them in the way that will bring them the most comfort. We especially remember our soldiers whose duties have separated them from their loved ones, and we remember their loved ones. We pray that you would be the tie that binds them together, no matter what distance is between them. We pray that you would guide us to be the heart and hands of Jesus to minister to them, ever calling to our minds that there are always times when we will need others to be Jesus to us. Thank you for the food we share and enjoy this day. It is the visible and tangible reminder you know our needs and provide them. As we break bread in fellowship and thanksgiving, we are reminded that the heavenly bread with which you met our deepest need was the body of your precious Son. We praise you especially for the atonement that he made for our sins, and it is in his holy and blessed name that we pray and give thanks. 
Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics, so if they missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all those episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time to hear the next chapter in The Golden Tree, Kumari's Quest, as we continue our discussion of the reality of Jesus' life. We hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. And we'd like to remind listeners that copies of The Golden Tree, Kamari's Quest are available from our website and also on Amazon. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.